Hello and welcome to Everybody Loves Communism, the leftist theory and history podcast where we do the reading so you don't have to. My name is Jorge Rocha. I'm Jamie Peck. And I gotta say, you just did a very good version of me doing that just now. Oh, thank like, you so much, Jamie. Like, I feel like, I, I mean, look, you made it your own, but... I feel like that's kind of how I do it, too, where I'm like trying to sound excited at the beginning. So I'm like, hello and welcome to blah, 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 blah. So good job. Thank you. Thank you. I try my best to be as excited as I am. And I am excited. Hell yeah. I mean, there are times, you know, being a professional podcaster, there are times you just got to churn churn some content out. Uh, But in the act of introducing the thing and talking like you're excited, you get a little excited. So, you know, fake it till you make it. That's the goal. But I am excited. We are both very excited today. That's right. We don't have to fake anything. Um, God. So where where the fuck are we? Um, Oh, I guess. Okay. Before we talk about the Paris Commune, we got to do a little bit of housekeeping. Right. And the first item, I think Jorge has a special announcement for you guys. Yeah, well, I mean, you heard it when I first announced the podcast. I said my full name. That's right. If you guys missed it, big reveal. Yeah, and you'll hear more moving forward. But yeah, my my name is Jorge Rocha. Nice to meet you all. Holy shit. Minds are exploding right now. Yeah, and I'll give you a full, a full bio. Why is it that I came up with my name? Well, the reason for that is that, you know, I recently became co-chair of North Brooklyn DSA. And, you know, I cannot hide as an elected leader of in DSA. And so I, there's a certain obligation. In addition to being a podcaster, I need to be revealing who I am. Can't hide. Holy shit. I mean, look, if this were the Paris Commune, I'm sure that there would have been a big debate over whether or not people should reveal their last names. But it's DSA, so it's a little different. Absolutely. So... Um, we have one more thing we need to address in terms of housekeeping. Uh, and moving forward, we probably will be doing this pretty often, which is one, well, this, this is one is an announcement, but also this is going to be more consistent. The announcement is that we now have a Patreon. Woohoo! That's right. So if you, for whatever reason, want to, you know, if you have, you subscribe to other Patreons, uh, you're, you're, you're a patron of other podcasts on Patreon, you know, you and you're on that platform. We are. We've made it. We've come. To, we're willing to meet you where you are. You know. If, we're, if you're on Patreon and you want to keep, you know, want to help, want to be a patron of our podcast, you're willing to do so. Then go to Patreon.com/slash Everybody Loves Communism, and then there you can be either one of two tiers of a comrade or commissar. Now, if you, now it must be important to note that we, you know, we still have fans.fm, fans.fm/slash Everybody Loves Communism, and. To be clear, the reason why we charge just a slightly bit more on Patreon is because Patreon's platform fees are eat, eat into quite a bit in terms of like the amount that we as, as, as you know as content creators receive. So that's why, well, whereas fans at FM is significantly less. That's the reason why. So don't we, we're not trying to upcharge just because we want to do that. It's because it, that's kind of how it plays out in actuality. That's right. But you know what? If you insist on using Patreon, that's fine. You know, use whatever platform you're comfortable with. We're just going to charge you an extra dollar or two, which is not a big deal per patron. 
But it really adds up once you get a whole bunch of patrons together, which we are hoping to do eventually, aren't we? Yeah, we are. And if you and if people subscribe to the podcast, you know, we will be able to not only make more extra content, but even make go move beyond that. Who knows? Maybe we, we don't have to just do audio. Ooh. That's a teaser for something that we have not figured out yet. But you know what? Um, give us money and we will. How, right. How's that for a pitch? Absolutely. Soon, soon you could see, you know, this podcast and all historical, historical and theory discussions and video. But with time, it costs money. So please help mm -hmm. us out. But thank you to everybody who's subscribed so far. You guys are the best. So that said... Should we get into the uh, Paris Commune again? Absolutely. You know, as kind of what we mentioned before, you know, this is going to be the third and last episode of our mini-series on the Paris Commune. Here, you know, first episode, we talked about what was the situation in Paris. That's kind of a recap. You know, what the first episode was on what was going on in Paris and in France at the time, and also the bit of a bit on the Franco-Prussian War, a little bit. But then really that kind of, we, we talked about on the second episode was the war itself and then how the second French empire collapsing led to the third French Republic, which those contradictions out of that war led to the Paris Commune. But now we're going to talk about in this episode, what was the Paris Commune? What did they do? Who are they? What, you know, what do they do? And I think Jamie can talk, tell us more about that. Yeah, man. So um, you may recall at the end of the last episode, uh, the communards had just defeated the national army and expelled them from Paris. And they were then free to meet and assemble and do their, do their governance of this new, newly free city, newly free uh, metropole, whatever you want to call it. Hell so yeah. what do we got? We got the first session of the council, March few, 28th. Few, 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 few. That's right. Oh, I've taught you so well. Uh, 1870. That's right, folks. I remembered a date. That's going to be a thing for me because I'm <laughs> real, real bad at it. But uh, we've been talking about the Paris Commune long enough that I'm remembering the dates now. So the first session of the council, March 28th, 1870. What did they do? They did some stuff. They declared... 1871, Jamie. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. I'm the worst. Uh, <laughs> pretty close, though, right? Yeah, we we're pretty close. Oh, my God. Paul, cut that out. Or leave it in. Just shame me. Okay. Um, <clears throat> what do they do? You know what's more important than the year is what they did during it. All right. That's right. So they <laughs> they declared an honorary presidency for Blanqui, which is pretty cute. Uh, they abolished the death penalty. Pretty cool. Um, a lot of people died during the fighting, but that's different. They were at war. That doesn't count. We should um, be against the death penalty in principle. Certainly, certainly. Uh, you know, it's it's less of a penalty. I guess it is a penalty when you're fighting war, but it's not the same thing. Um, they abolished the military draft. They, I mean, the, the by the military draft, I mean like the French national government can't come in and draft people. Uh, right. Pretty sure most of the men were still expected to participate as part of the National Guard in defending right. the city because right. they really they really needed it. It was an all hands on deck situation. Um, they passed a proposal to send delegates to other cities to help launch communes there, which was a great idea. Uh, they didn't do such a good job at that, unfortunately. 
That was one of many reasons why the commune failed. Um, no. But oh they, their, their heads were in the right place. They knew that they needed to do that. Um, they passed a resolution declaring that membership in the Paris commune was incompatible with being a member of the National Assembly, which was, you know, the bourgeois government of France. Um, this was aimed at one guy in particular named Pierre, Pierre Tirard. Uh, he was a Republican. He was mayor of the second arrondissement, and he had been elected to both the commune and the national assembly. And they were like, "Fucking Pierre, this this one's for you, man." Um, That's but so weird. It's like just pick a like. You can't you can't have it both ways, man. You can't you can't be he's hedging I'm his a, bets. I'm a little bit on this. I'm a little bit. In, it's kind of it, it reminds me a little bit of like the Brexit people that are in the European Parliament. Say more. Well, it's like when, when before... Oh, right, because they were like, fuck the European Parliament. Right, but they're in it, and it's like, okay, buddy, well, like, just pick some... What's going on here? It's like... <laughs> they're hedging their bets, all right? Well, it's all right, because Pierre and 20 more Republicans resigned after this session, because they're like, you know what? We don't like the radical direction things are going. We're going to throw in our lot with the, with the national government anyway. Convenient, convenient story. Yeah, they're like, we don't, we don't want to do this anyway. We're going to take our ball and go home. Um, a resolution was also passed following a long debate that the deliberations of the council were to be secret since the commune was effectively at war with the government in Versailles. Fair. And they didn't want them to know what they were doing. That's fair. It's Makes national sense. security, you know? It's commune security. It's OPSEC. So uh, the new government had no president there was no mayor and no commander-in-chief of Paris. Instead, they established nine different commissions to manage the affairs of various parts of Paris. And these commissions all reported to the executive commission. So there was no military force. They passed, they passed another resolution. Okay, so no military other than the National Guard could be formed or introduced into the capital or conscript people, like I was talking about earlier. But all healthy male citizens were now members of the National Guard. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a society at war. Um, unfortunately, the way things ended up, the National Guard now had two commanders reporting to two different bodies, which is to say the Central Committee and the Executive Committee. So there was no number one in charge of military operations, and this would later prove to be a problem. Yeah, it seems not the best idea to have, you know, the one thing that's like protecting your experiment in democracy divided like that that's i don't know it seems a little they just we'll needed see. to figure this shit out yeah but yeah. they were they were under a lot of pressure so you know they did their best all right so program all right i'm gonna tell you about the program now um unfortunately i know i'm telling you all these cool things that they did at the first session um the life of the commune was very brief so they really didn't have the chance to do that much. Um, the new government met fewer than 60 days total, but they still managed to do some stuff. So in addition to what I just told you, they adopted the Republican French calendar, removing all religious and royalist influences. And they flew the socialist flag instead of the French flag, which is cool. Um, cool. Now I'm just going to read from Wikipedia. Full disclosure, got a lot of my info from Wikipedia. Also read an academic article, so, you know, you can't just say I only read Wikipedia. Um, but I'm going to quote Wikipedia now, because, you know what, it can be a good source sometimes. In theory, 
Oh, okay. Sorry. This is about um, <laughs> this is about the separation of church and state. Probably should have added a transition in there. Um, they were they're pretty big on separating the church and state. I would say, perhaps that's an understatement. What do you think, Jorge? Yeah, I mean, I would say pretty important, and that's kind of, it's part of the reason why in the first episode of this miniseries we really discussed about the importance of like that's why we made an em- an emphasis on the decline in terms of of people become being catholic in France particularly in Paris one because of the political undertones of like what what being catholic meant under Napoleon III but also uh people increasingly over time in terms of you know this, this is the, the near the tail end of the enlightenment era but still a little bit near the end of that but still part of that it's like people want to you know have a secular government and the church was heavily monarchist so they're like get this church out of here we don't need you so according to wikipedia in theory the churches were allowed to continue their religious activity only if they kept their doors open for public political meetings during the evenings in practice many churches were closed and many priests were arrested and held as hostages in the hope of trading them for Blanqui, imprisoned in Brittany since 17th of March. Poor guy, the president in exile. Fucking wow. A, man. Wow. So they did execute the archbishop and many priests, but this was only as retaliation for the execution of commune soldiers by the army. So again, they're at war. Different, different rules apply, I think. I'm not saying that it's good that they did that necessarily. I'm just saying I understand it. It's definitely um, as a as a as a as I found out recently. You know, as someone who has been excommunicated by the Catholic Church, I still have some sentimentalities uh, towards the Catholic Church. But that being said, you know, it's definitely a complicated relationship. What'd you do? So I found out recently that. Uh, uh, that I, I've, you know, uh, our, our friend, our friend Marvin, friend of the show, uh, said that I technically am not excommunicated because it has to be an explicit decree. But according to a papal bull from the fifties, that say fifties or sixties, it says that anyone that de- any Catholic that declares themselves a communist is excommunicated. Shit! So you uh, just are. Yeah, I mean. He claims that there's a difference in terms of like the actual way that it plays out, but I don't know. I read what I read. Wow. Fun fact. So all you Catholics out there, be careful because, you know, you might get excommunicated too. Maybe you want to just, just be aware of that fact. I'm a bad influence. Wow. Cool, man. Cool. Uh, <laughs> just, we just, this is a discovery. This is a journey of learning and discovery for all of us. So mm-hmm. yeah. Um, separation of church and state. So this also included the expropriation of all church property. I feel like that's one of the magic words that we say on this show. Expropriation. expropriation hey, of all Queen church property. Free, free. <laughs> that's right. To become public property and there would be no more religion in schools so the formal principle here is called laicite and it's played out in some unexpected ways in recent years as it's clashed with the new to france traditions of muslim immigrants 
but it's important to understand where it came from and put it in its proper context, I think. Right. Um, Interesting. What else? What else did they do? They abolished child labor and night work in bakeries. Cool. Good. Um, granted pensions to the unmarried companions and children of National Guardsmen killed in active service. That's great. Very progressive of them, actually. Yeah. Um, this is cool. They, there was a, a decree that um, pawn shops had to freely return all working men's tools and household items valued up to 20 francs uh, that were pledged during the siege. Oh, hell and there's yeah. Like, there's, there's some cool little like old-timey drawings and uh, woodcuts or whatever showing this, showing them actually go around and give people their tools back, which hell is yeah. pretty cool. Um, which, I mean, it makes sense on multiple levels, right? Because... Uh, they wanted to set up these workers' cooperatives, and the workers needed tools in order to do that. Right. Uh, they were they were trying to reorganize the economy, so that was a good place to start. Um, they postponed all commercial debt obligations and abolished the interest on the debts. Hell yeah! Great, great. Um, employees, this is very important. Uh, they de- they declared the right of employees to take over and run an enterprise an enterprise if it were deserted by its owner. Damn. Yeah. I mean, I think that's pretty fucking reasonable. They weren't expropriating stuff if the owner was still there. Damn. Right, right. Um, nonetheless, though, the commune recognized the previous owner's right to compensation, which is, you know, very nice, very generous. We're, we're seeing them. It's, it's an evolution, folks. So they are, there are elements of socialism. There are elements of social democracy. Um, but in many cases, the commune government is just reasonable as shit. Uh, and like in a situation where there is a war going on, especially, I think this is very, uh, very true to the liberal values that it grew out of, I would say. Um, yeah, absolutely. We, we also had a prohibition of fines imposed by employers on their workmen, which I didn't even know that was a thing. But I guess it is a thing if you count a fine as like, I'm taking I'm docking your pay. I'm docking your pay for this shit. That's probably what uh, that is. They weren't allowed to do that anymore. So, cool. Uh, fun fact. Many of the delegates to the Commune Council were expected to carry out executive and military functions in addition to their legislative ones. So they're basically wearing three hats at once. And that kind of puts my own burnout in perspective from when I was on the North Brooklyn Organizing Committee. And I was like, oh, man, they want us to do too much. We were not fighting a war, folks. <laughs> Oh man, so. that would be that'd be a lot. Oh god. Yeah, yeah. You're thinking about that right now, aren't you? Oh man. <laughs> so yeah, um, despite the sudden departure of many city officials and employees for various reasons, the commune managed to run shit pretty well. Uh, it provided water, light, postal service. Gotta gotta have the mail. Uh, street cleaning. And garbage disposal. It also collected taxes. So, you know, all the markers of a functioning social democratic society, more or yeah. less. Yeah, and like what's interesting is like, you know, I, you know, when we were researching this, I remember finding something regarding the, in terms of collecting taxes, that there was like this American family that found themselves stranded in Paris Commune. So when then, I think the commune, you know, requested taxation of everybody and it included them. They thought this was in, this was absurd, you know. This was, no, I'm not I, because they, because they couldn't afford to. They're like, well, I can't afford to do it, and 
to the American surprise, the Paris Commune said, okay, you can't. All right, that's understandable. And that, and they, these Americans had originally been very against the Paris Commune, and their, their response apparently was something along the lines of, well, they're not so bad. Aren't, aren't, these commune arts aren't so bad. Well, that was very smart of the commune then. Maybe this was for PR reasons. Who knows? But uh, that, was, that was very nice of them. Very, again, very reasonable. Yes. They weren't doing the terror. There was, I mean, well, I would say there was no Robespierre in the, co- in the commune, but there were definitely some people who were more violent and militant than others. But For sure. On the whole, could have been a lot worse. Certainly, if I were in charge. <laughs> so, yeah. Where are we? Fuck. Uh, oh, here we are. Um, oh, here's a quote added by Jorge that I think is interesting. Because um, we work on this together, folks. Quote. Some, where, where is this from? From, about from the, the crime. From the Merriman book. Oh, right. Oh, wonderful. Good book. Recommend it. Read a little bit of it. Need to read more. Um, Okay, so according to the John Merriman book, some observers insisted that crime seemed like less of a problem in Paris during the commune before than after. Did I get that right? Yeah. Less crime. Crime went down. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of it just like we can't really ever know since since it just happened so quickly and a lot of it records weren't happening. But a lot of people who were living through it insisted that, no, it was there was less crime. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Um, and they had community patrols of some sort to deal with the crime that I don't know a ton of details about, but I know it from reading a little bit about Louise Michel, who we'll get into way, way later. Yeah. And there was, I think from her correctly, there was that, you know, I think the police, you know, under Raul Rogo, like they, they had put up like signs, for instance, that saying that like, if, you steal, you'll like be shot, but like tr- you know, to try to deter people from stealing. And but apparently, they almost no one stole from what they from even even like much less so than even during like any other time. Hell yeah! Imagine that. That's cool. Less alienated society with a common purpose leads to less interpersonal harm. Go figure. Yeah, um, makes sense. Yeah. So, um, what else? Okay. So, the commune banned sex work, or as they called it, prostitution, uh, going so far as to make arrests and drive sex work even further underground. So, not the, not the best way to deal with that, I don't no. think. But, uh, you know, again, these things are evolving. They were, they were still evolving politically. Um, we have to show the good and the bad, folks. Yeah. Yeah. And I like... It's, it's not the craziest conclusion to make when you're like looking at the conditions that sex workers lived in in 19th century Paris. Like, well, this seems like a problem. Yes, that is correct. How do we deal with this problem? I don't think they did the correct thing to deal with it. But, uh, you know, this was before we had such an evolved position on decrim. And, uh, yeah. I, you know what? I would like to read more about this, actually. That would from, be interesting. From my understanding, the, the impetus for doing so had to do with the spread of venereal disease, which also mm. rose during the siege, but during Paris Commune, it had also rose. So I, from my understanding, that, that is the impetus as to why 
they wanted to ban it. All right. Following, following the logic. Um, so a lot of localities within Paris ran their affairs autonomously along a model that sounds a lot like mutual aid, which is cool. And I think shows how autonomous sort of anarchist models of mutual aid can coexist with a revolutionary government or socialist state in some instances. Um, they had canteens, first aid stations, schools, and a lot of localities uh, had set these up going back to the siege. So they predated the commune. Here's another quote from Wikipedia. In the third arrondissement, school materials were provided free. Three parochial schools were laicized and an orphanage was established. In the 20th arrondissement, school children were provided with free clothing and food. At the same time, these local assemblies pursued their own goals, usually under the direction of local workers. So this sounds a lot like Soviets to me, right? Yeah, I mean, a little bit. But I mean, it's, I feel like it's a bit... Um, these local assemblies, that, from my understanding, were, also, were called uh, mairies, like the town halls, which we'll talk about in a sec. But that's, from my understanding, what, what, what they're probably making reference to there. All right. Makes sense. Um, so I guess, you know what? I'm talking about two different things. Fuck. Did I do a bad job? I might, I might be doing a bad job here. <laughs> there's, there's the mutual aid and there's the town halls. All right. Great. Um, so yeah, uh, the commune, they wanted to make sure everyone had food. So they established a commission on subsistence March 29th. Um, although the price of food did rise during the Paris commune, uh, the situation did not even come close to the extreme shortages they had during the Prussian siege. You'll remember people were eating the zoo animals. It was insanity. Yeah, it was like I think I think there was still a little bit of that, but not not even to nearly the same degree. Well, that's good. Um, yeah. Okay. So you just brought this up. Uh, we had some. They were called mairies, these arrondissement town halls, and one of the ways they dealt with food shortages was that they purchased and sold meat at about cost. So basically, single-payer food, right? right. These, uh, these mairies, it's not the only thing they did. Um, they were hubs of activity. They handled local governance. They had communal dormitories for people who needed a place to sleep. They provided national guardsmen and indigents with coal, wood, and bread. And they gave these soup kitchens where food was available to anyone who needed it. They also, and this is fun, they also performed marriages. Yeah. Can you imagine getting married during the Paris Commune? Yeah, it's like, uh, it's like, what, it's like, I can already imagine like a Twitter post from, from you know, April, 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 eighteen seventy one. It'd be like, do you do you want do you want to get married at the at at the at the arrondissement Marie with me, please? Woo woo. Wee wee. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, most of those crazy kids got killed right after that. But you know what? They got to get married first, and that's nice. Now that's a revolutionary love story. Oh, my God. So sad. Now I'm sad thinking about the people that that happened to. But I'll keep going. Could be a great, great, uh, great idea for, uh, for a romance novel. Oh, what if we kissed the Paris Gabbard, JK, unless. Unless. Haha. Unless. <laughs> oh, man. That's all right. That's one place I'm going to time travel to and do that. Um, so, yes, uh, the Commune Council, we keep talking about how reasonable they were. They were social Democrats 
And compared to the composition of the commune as a whole, they were actually quite moderate. Um, there were lots and lots of factions, and some of them were much more radical than the mainstream of the council. And that included uh, Proudhonists slash anarchists, international socialists, uh, Blanquists, and they had some kind of anti-state libertarian Republicans. I don't know if I'd consider them to the left of uh, the Sock Dems. Well, we'll put that one on ice. So, okay, we have banking. Oh, God. Do you want to do this part, Jorge? I feel like I suck at talking about anything to do with banking and finance. It makes me feel stupid. Absolutely, I could do this. So, <laughs> uh, you know, communard Francois Jordan named, was named the Minister of Finance. He ran the commune's finances and got a loan from the Bank of France for about 700,000 francs. So it's a pretty decent amount, chunk of change. They, they also... The commune was able to open up a credit line of about $16 million worth of francs from the Bank of France, which, you know, is quite a bit amount, quite a big amount given like what they, the loan that they originally got. But this is not so much compared to the 258 million francs of credit that Versailles had from the Bank of France. They also, they being the, the commune, had also needed to take out a loan from the Rothschild banking family. Yes, the Rothschilds are not just an anti-Semitic trope, and just during this period of time, they were a powerful banking family. They were real. Um, the, the commune, I will say, did, did slowly run out of money over, over this period of time, but that's not primarily why they have issues. Um, they did, well, it is important to note that they, they refused to confiscate and spend the Bank of France cash, and basically they refused to expropriate the Bank of France for two reasons. One is because, you know, the army had taken all the gold and they, they being the Paris Commune, had worried the money's value would collapse without gold. And, you know, Marx said this, said not expropriating the bank was a mistake and then they should have just taken it and spent the money. Uh, additionally, the Commune had a strict sense of legalism and did not have much of an economic or political program beyond affirming France was now a republic. You know, Jamie just spoke about some of the nice things that they did, but... They didn't really have a vision aside from, oh, well, we, we, we want, you know, self-governance. We want, we're a republic. There, there, there wasn't anything really beyond that. And, you know, Jamie kind of mentions a little bit here, in terms of here but, you know, it, it is a bit strange to consider that the socialist commune, which we're kind of seeing now, it wasn't too socialist, really, but was a step in that direction, still had to deal with this kind of substance that we talk about with money. But, you know, it is what it is, right? It's like they... You still have to work with like what's what's going on, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people were radicalized by this experience, and in part because uh, one of many things the commune still had to deal with was money, and they're like, you know what? Fuck it, no half measures. I'm a fucking anarchist. I think we need to burn all of it down and start anew. And that is. Um, one more thing I'm going to talk about. I'm teasing my little bonus segment I'm going to do on Louise Michel, who was herself an anarchist radicalized by her experience in the commune. And they called her the Red Virgin of Montmartre. Yeah, it's Isn't really cool. cool. It's really cool. She's cool. But what, um, what's interesting, too, is like, uh, I guess, you know, there is that kind of approach. And also, additionally, there's also the another potential reaction to this is like, well, the problem is that they just didn't nationalize the bank, right? If they just nationalized the bank, they also would just have access to all the money. So the point is, like, they, they, 
there was a lot of venue that could have uh, strategy they could have tried and they didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. So you live, you, know, you learn. Yep. Or, you know, a lot of them didn't live, I guess. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> too soon. Too soon. 150 years no. later. Too soon? It is, it's always going to be too soon to talk about this. So back to the happy time in the Paris Commune. Um, we don't have to deal with the Bloody Week just yet. They banned the major pro-Versailles newspapers. Remember, Versailles is where the national government and army are camping out. Waiting to make their eventual return. Um, Versailles responded by censoring all of the pro-commune papers in areas they controlled, which is most of France. Remember, guys, we're in an info war. All these nice liberal values that the uh, French government or, you know, our current one claims to respect are very contingent on what else is happening and whether they're under threat by socialists. So would they have censored the pro-commune papers if the commune hadn't done it first? I do not have the authority to say, but I'm going to go with yes. So much for the tolerant left, Jamie. So much for the tolerant left, yeah. Um, But the pro-commune papers were doing very well in Paris. Um, We had one called Le Père Duchesne, specialized in humor, vulgarity, and extreme abuse against the opponents of the commune. Oops, was going to dig up some fun examples, but I didn't. Sorry. <laughs> That's just the way it goes sometimes. Um, maybe that'll be another bonus. How about that? Um, there were also... This is very nice of them. They allowed Republican papers to exist that were critical of both the commune and the national government. I would say pick aside losers, but I mean, I guess that's nice that they got to do that. Yeah, they cared about, you, you know, people can say, oh, what about the tolerant left? Well, no, what about freedom of free speech? Guess what, buddy? We, there, there, there was just not for you, buddy. That's right. So another fun thing that happened. Oh, let's relish this part of the app, guys, because it's going to get is, really sad. This is pretty cool. It's a pretty this cool is, thing. This is really cool. So there was this thing called the Vendome, Van, more like Vendome column, <laughs> honoring the victories of Napoleon, Napoleon the first. That is, I don't think Napoleon the third had too many victories because no. um, he was a fail son. So this is everyone talks about you know taking down monuments today. All right, this is where this came from. All right, the number one, the number one canceller was Gustave Courbet, who. I remember from my art history classes, but apparently he was also a radical communard. So in October of 1871, he had called for a new column made out of melted down German cannons. Well, if it's October, it has to be 1870. Well, I fucked it up again. I am not good at dates. Um, just going to say that. I'm not good at dates that I, things that I have to do. I'm not good at dates of things that I'm going to do, media appearances. I fucked it up in a tweet the other day. This is going to be a fucking problem. But you know what? I'm working on it. It's okay, so, Jamie. Yeah. That's, why we're, I, that's why it's both of us. It was totally unnecessary to even say the year just now. And I did it anyway because I thought I had it. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, um, he in October, just say October, Gustave Courbet had called for a new column made out of melted down German cannons commemorating the people taking power. So that's pretty cool. 
Um, it was voted on uh, the 12th of April by the executive committee of the commune. And they declared this, this bondum column, uh, quote, a monument of barbarism and, quote, a symbol of brute force and false pride. So they were like, you know what? This is a great idea, Gustave Courbet. We're going to fucking do it. So they destroyed this column while a band played La Marseillaise and Chant du Depart, which are both uh, revolutionary war songs from France. They draped the they draped the base of the column or the former base of the former column in red flags, melted down parts of the statue into coins. Pretty cool. So after the collapse of the column uh, of the of the column of the commune. Gustave Courbet was unfortunately sentenced to six months in prison and ordered to pay a fine for this destruction. But I should note, he was given a lighter sentence than other communards after he defended himself and kind of kind of hedged his involvement in the commune, said he didn't really want to destroy the column. He just wanted to move it, move it somewhere else, like shit like that. I really can't blame him. Whatever. Like, not everyone can be like Louise Michelle, just like... Wow, I'm really jumping the gun on this because I was just reading about her. But she did not walk back any of her ideas. And I also respect that. Um, this is cute. This is cute, very cute and very French. Because remember, Gustave Courbet was also a great artist. They let him paint when he was in prison. But they drew the line at letting him paint live models. Wow. Mm -mm. <laughs> yeah. Torture. And unfortunately, he could not pay back the fine. And shortly thereafter, he died in exile. So really, he won because he never paid them the money. Um, it was also <laughs> his idea. That's right. It was also his idea to destroy the house of one Adolf Tears. Damn. Now, if you recall, that stupid, uh, that, that shit lib in The New Yorker was really, really, really upset about this. He was particularly upset that they destroyed Adolf Tears' house. Oh, no. Not not the man's property. Um, like, that's really fucked up. Like, no wonder they decided to massacre them all, right? Um, again, violence towards property, I think, gets conflated in the liberal mind with violence towards um, human beings. But anyway, um, this is funny. They tried to donate Adolf Tears' works of art to the Louvre. Uh, I mean, not art that Tears painted, but, you know, art that he owned. But the Louvre refused. Um, they wanted to fix the Louvre. They wanted to uh, make it better and more radical, but they just like, that was one of many things they ran out of time to do. Uh, the, um, the bourgeois institution. They're, yeah. they're, they're practicing class solidarity. Like, we're not going to take that. Yeah, they're like, we can't take this. You stole this from our boy Adolf? No. Uh, but they did sell the furniture from his house to benefit widows and orphans of the men who were fighting to defend the commune. Hell yeah. Which is, you know, what should have happened. So now we're going to talk a little bit about the role of women in the Paris commune. All right. Are you ready? Are you ready? You ready to talk about some, some girl bosses, buddy? Oh yeah. All right. Great. So women played an important role in the Paris commune. Now, they couldn't vote, and they held no elected positions, but Whoa. they did a bunch of other stuff. They built barricades, they cared for the wounded, and they advocated for the position of women, and specifically working-class women, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, there were some important publications um, 
this Russian lady named Anne Jaclard. She declined to marry Dostoevsky. Wow. But finally became the wife. Yeah. Finally became the wife of Blanquiste activist Victor Jaclard, which would explain why she has a French name and not a Russian one. Mm -hmm. uh, she founded the newspaper La Sociale with the feminist writer Andre Leo, and they became a very important voice of the commune and specifically of socialist feminism. So there was a female battalion in the National Guard, and they defended the Place Blanche during the repression. We're probably going to get into that in the later section. The sad part, we don't have to talk about too much right now. And here's another teaser, which means I definitely need to finish this and record it. Um, Louise Michel, one of many influential women in the commune, um, was a really cool lady became an anarchist, rabble-roused her whole entire life, um, did a bunch of cool shit. So, TB, TB, to be continued, that's right, on she's her. One of, she's one of our great girl bosses of the movement. That's right. So, now I'm going to tell you about another thing to do with women. Are you ready? I'm ready. So, we had a little thing. Let me start over. This is like... This is so important. I just have to like ramp up to it and it's making me nervous. So <laughs> there was an org there was also an organization called the Women's Union for the Defense of Paris and Care of the Wounded. Wow. Now, this was a really cool, really influential socialist feminist organization because they did a whole lot of things like they they did praxis. Right. They actually did things. And they also did a lot of, I don't want to call it theory, but yeah, like they made a lot of proclamations about what they believed. Um, so let's, let's talk about it. Um, they wanted to overthrow capitalism and patriarchy at the same time, oh, yeah. which is pretty cool. Uh, they too opposed prostitution, which is, you know, whatever. Um, need, I think you need some context for that position. Uh, sure. And they organized a ton of mutual aid. So this union, this women's union, it existed everywhere in the city. It was comprised almost completely of working class women. And it was primarily concerned with the immediate material needs of working class women. Um, we don't know the exact relationship between the commune and the women's union, but it was linked with the Labor and Exchange Commission, as well as most of the Arlingdismont town halls. And the, uh, the commune, the executive committee, did pay the salary for some of the representatives to the union. So oh, yeah, there's, pay women. There's, yeah, that's right. Pay women for their work. Uh, so yeah, there's reason to believe that the commune, especially the female communards, actually had a hand in founding this union. So they saw socialism as an essential part of the path towards equality of the sexes. And they were, despite not lasting that long, somewhat influential on socialist feminist movements that would come after them. So unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, a lot of the info on them has been lost and some of some of it has had to be pieced together from various primary sources. Um, but a lot of it, unfortunately, and fortunately, as the case may be, because we want to know about them. Uh, it comes from the military tribunals that happen later. So, and obviously that's going to be a biased, biased source on them. But it is funny to see them, you know, 
freak out about the women's union. Yep. So here's a quote from a report from one of the mili- military tribunals, uh, Rapport à Père, quote, all or almost all live indecently, <laughs> even the married women. The immense majority could easily be won over by the appealing prospect of disorder. Wow. Just picturing a bunch of like chaotic, hysterical women like, I vote disorder. Uh, idleness, envy, and thirst for unknown and ardently desired pleasures all contributed to blinding them. Wow. Hence, they threw themselves into the revolutionary movement, which was to engulf them. Hell yeah. How do you, how do you feel about that? <laughs> what are these women? <laughs> right? I'm currently, I'm currently single. I want to know where these women are. They sound pretty cool, right? Yeah. They sound like some some fun broads. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, being a very working class organization, um, the feminism of the union looked a little different than the bourgeois liberal feminism that had sort of been starting to develop at this time. Um they didn't care as much about civic demands like voting, holding office, etc. They really just needed jobs and money. So that was the first thing on their mind. The real stuff, uh, you know? Yeah, the meat and potatoes. Like, who cares if you can vote if you don't have any money to feed your kids with, if you don't have any food? Um, so, but, you know, they also, they also consider their higher faculties um, because working class women, even more than men at this time, suffered from lack of education they often did not get an education so that's something they wanted to fix um the union was not only the prime intermediary between you know women writ large and the commune government it was also the largest and most influential political organization in the commune period so that's pretty cool um after being crushed a similar thing on a similar scale didn't reappear until well into the 20th century so this was a really unique thing and really, it really set us back. When they did a feminism. They, they did. They did a feminism. Um, yeah. And like I said, the commune paid the salaries of women's union representatives, which indicates some conscious collaboration from the outset. And, you know, we, it means the feminists had effectively infiltrated the commune from the beginning. Folks. <laughs> So they weren't perfect. Like we said, the commune wasn't perfect in terms of including women, but it was the first French government to give women positions of responsibility. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They gave, they gave them some jobs. So it appointed women to administer welfare institutions. Um, Women were sent on liaison missions to provincial cities and they were included on commissions to reform education and open new schools for girls. So, yeah, I think, the sources show, from what we can tell, that there were mixed feelings among the male communards. You know, somewhere. I'm sure. Some, somewhere into all this women's lib, and others were like, I don't know. I don't know about these broads. But uh, we have at least some evidence that the commune was supportive, largely supportive of feminism uh, because, oh, their public statements became more inclusive in who they addressed. We, we saw a switch from just the male version of citizens to citoyen et citoyenne, because, you know, French is a gendered language. Yep. Um, 
We had references in the historical records to enrolling more women in trade unions and other groups. Cool. There were, yeah, there were calls for equal schooling for girls. And there was a decree giving equal pay to female teachers. Closing the wage gap, folks. The wage gap, yeah. And they were actually the first organization to call for equal pay for equal work for women. Pretty cool. And there was no... So, and if you look at the kind of media that was coming out, there was a sudden drop in these sort of blue stocking caricatures of feminist types, which had been in full effect before that. So it seems like they had an influence on the culture as well. Or, you know, maybe the socialist men of the commune just liked it more that this was like a working class feminism and it wasn't like a bunch of bougie liberal scolds. I don't know. Um, You're telling me my wife could get money? Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah, so in in total, working class men, socialists, um, two overlapping groups, they were, they were a lot more supportive of women's political activity than they had been, um, which is cool. And the first meeting of the union, of the women's union, it set up committees in all different R&D smalls. And these committees, they did a lot of stuff. So... Like I said, they said stuff and they did stuff. They did theory and they did praxis, folks. That's great. That's, that's how you win. So they're kind of like this address, podcast. Kind of like this podcast. We're trying our best. Yeah. So the the unions committee, uh, they had their address. Their first address was printed in the Journal Officiel of the Commune. So again, showing that close close link between the union and the commune as a whole, and it laid out a few ideas. Right. So all of their content demands and programs were being conceived in relation to working class women. And they made that very clear. Uh, let me be clear. Um, it refers to, a co- to the commune as a project to eliminate all social inequality, including Ooh. gender inequality. Go off. That's right. And, quote, it describes sex discrimination as a means employed by the privileged classes to maintain their power and implies that dis- this discrimination depends upon the general acceptance of attitudes which divide male and female working people. Yo, and flames. I think, yeah, exactly. I mean, I agree. I'm saying quote, because I'm quoting from an academic article now, not Wikipedia folks, and I'll put a link to it in the episode description. So yeah, it was the first French women's organization to explain sex inequality in terms of class, which means it was one of the first organizations period to do that. At least, uh, as far as we know. And it framed, uh, furthermore, it framed this abolition of, uh, of patriarchy, of sex discrimination, as being essential to the cohesion and survival of the commune. And I think they were right, A. And I think B, there's we a, can see... There's a lot see, to that. Yeah, we can see the influence there in like any time we talk about intersectional feminism, socialist feminism today... Right. Just the 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 practice, the idea where we link up all these different kinds of oppression as disunifying factors in the working class and therefore obstacles to building class power. I think that's absolutely the right analysis there. So more more on the union. Excuse me. A woman is talking. JK. Um, I'm I'm listening. I'm hearing your valid. Okay, I'm I'm listening. I'm, I'm, I'm not spoken much at all. Amplify women's voices. That's right. Uh, So more on the union. Um, At their first meeting, they requested that all arrondissement town halls 
have an HQ room for women's committees, uh, a large premise, large premises for women's citizens to meet. And they also wanted them to subsidize the printing of women's circulars and notices. It's all pretty cool. Uh, I don't think they asked for lactation rooms, but I think these demands are pretty good. Um, there was a wall poster. That's right, folks. They circulated wall posters as one method of propaganda. Um, they circulated a wall poster. The commune did it for them as requested. Um, and it framed some of these ideas. It framed the Paris commune as a class conflict and, uh, gender conflict and it mirrored the language of the French section of the International Working Men's Association which again shows the sort of international ties or not again because I really haven't talked about it that much um, but yeah the international loom large as well um, Eugene Varlin of the Paris International a man uh, he articulated that equal pay for equal work is only fair and will keep women's work women workers from driving down men's wages because that was a lot of the reason why men male workers were opposed to women in the workforce it wasn't just these like trad values it was like well but women get paid less and that's going to drive down our wages um also interesting the union was demsent which was rare for a late 19th century organization so the members all what dem i should say what it means so demsent is short for democratic centralism which Basically means you can debate all you want within the, you know, within the party or the meeting, the organization. But then, you know, the decisions either made by voting or made by some executive committee are things you have to abide by. So in the case of the union, the members recognized the authority of the central committee, but the delegates to the central committee were recallable from below. So there you see a model of democratic centralism in action. So... The arrondissement committees of the union, they I, did a lot of things. I, I will say, Jamie, that was a, that was really well done. And I think I, I genuinely did learn a lot. I'm sure everyone at home also learned a lot about that, you know, how important that people typically talk about the Paris Commune as like this kind of you know, uh, initial model of socialism or dictatorship of the proletariat. But quite frankly, most people don't talk about is the fundamental relationship of women and, femi and how feminist the... Uh, you know, rank and file of and just ordinary members of the Paris Commune was. Oh my God, thank you. I agree. So, yeah, these committees, they did shit. Um, they provided non-religious personnel for orphanages and nursing homes. Remember, we're separating the church from the state, folks. Uh, they supplied nurses and other personnel to the National Guard battalions and the medic stations, because remember, they're at war. Um, they organized public meetings. They staffed town hall centers for information and for various types of aid. And they did a ton of administrative work and internal operations. So that was what the committees out there in the arrondissements were doing. Um, the executive commission did a whole lot too. So the executive commission was, again, not just concerned with doing things, but saying things, making proclamations. So... They believed that the transition to socialism meant that workers were taking over control of production, fact, and workers would take political power. And they worked at both of these, especially the first. And they had plans, folks, just like Elizabeth Warren. They wow. had a plan for that. Yeah. So uh, plan one was 
got got a little polemical, a little ideological, as well as practical, about why we need to have worker control over production and how to transition production into these cooperatively owned and run workshops. And plan two, they had more than one plan. Great. Uh, they had some more details about how they were actually going to implement these cooperative worker-owned workshops for women in shops that had been abandoned by their owners as per the earlier uh, resolutions by the commune government. And not only that, but they called explicitly for, quote, the abolition of all competition between men and women workers, their interests being absolutely identical and their solidarity essential for the excess of the definitive universal strike of labor against capital, end quote. Boom. Uh, they also demanded equal pay for equal work, which, as I said, first time French women had demanded this. So the women's union thought that the worker owned production and distribution would be so much more efficient than capitalist production that it would just naturally spread and take over. Um, unfortunately, they did not predict large scale capitalist industry, um, but we still got to do it, folks. Um, and this is really sad. So. They had their plan, right, to turn abandoned workshops into worker co-ops for women. And I mean, as you can imagine, that's kind of a complex process. But they completed their plan just as the Versailles troops were invading Paris. So they never got to carry it out. Um, sad. But anyway, uh, these plans and the statement by the executive committee, they, again, every chance they got, they tied women's economic needs to the defense of the commune and the revolution more generally. And one reason they cited for this, interestingly, um, and you know what? Maybe I'll include, ah, it's too late. I'm not gonna include the full quote, but um, <laughs> this academic article has a great quote from Andre Leo, who again was the radical feminist writer that I referenced earlier, saying that a failure to provide for women's material needs, specifically working women, could drive them to turn on the commune and become reactionaries. Wow. So, yeah, always got to think about the material needs. It's the material needs, stupid. It's true. Mm-hmm. They, they knew what was up because they saw what just happened. <laughs> like, people didn't have food and they got pissed off and they uh, fucking revolted. So the union had some lasting influence, I will say, despite having been over way too soon um there was a new worker syndicate that popped up right after the fall of the commune uh now it was soon to be banned because the french government really cracked down on anything too socialist but before they were banned they stated that women members would have the same rights as men and uh male socialists by many reports were a lot less indifferent to women's rights and contributions following the commune so i think uh, they really had an impact, judging from that. So here's a quote from this academic article that I've been citing. I should probably say what it is, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say what it is. Uh, it's, um, it's not a secret. It's not a secret source. I'm going to cite my sources. Um, it's by Eugene Shulkin, and it's called Socialist Women During the 1871 Paris Commune. And it's about uh, the success of the union and why they were able to achieve what they did. So, quote, if the union was so immediately successful in reaching both the commune government and large numbers of women, it's probably because in this eminently fertile terrain, its leadership blended persuasive socialist arguments, programs for alleviating pressing material problems and active support for the commune. 
Undoubtedly, the critical military position and aggravated unemployment among women were decisive in shaping the orientation of the union and resulted in less attention to the specifically feminist political and civic objectives for which several leaders of the union had struggled before the commune. So a few things pop out about this. Um, obviously, people's material needs take precedence above all else. So right. that really makes sense. Um, but also, like, I think it's interesting to look at, especially now as we keep going, going back to socialist efforts to build something resembling a party that can engage a lot of working people and get them involved. And I think what it comes down to often and what we see here is, again, it's the material needs, stupid. It's like, what relevance does it have to my life? How are you going to help me? How are you going right. to help me now? Um, you have to have an answer for that. So, yeah, it, to conclude this segment, um, it was a real turning point for French labor history and French feminism, the Paris Commune and the Women's Union. Um, but its influence was limited because the Commune was defeated so quickly and then repressed. And I mean repressed. Like, it was years before socialist parties were even allowed to exist in France. Again, so much for the tolerant left, so much for liberal values. Um, so, yeah. Due to the intense repression, it wouldn't happen again for a minute there. But I think I already said that. And that's all that's all I got. No, and I think that was wonderful, Jamie. I think think I I definitely learned a lot um from in terms of the experience, in terms of what happened with women in this in the Paris commune. And a lot of the demands and the way they kind of approach things are, you know, you, I think you said it best, are, you know reflected in a lot of like the intersectional feminist demands that are being said now that, you know, you read it and you think this could not possibly be from the the late 19th century. And yet it was, it's quite remarkable because of, it just shows that, or it's like, you know, shows something good, but also something quite negative, which is, you know, the good thing is like, it just shows that, that we converge on a lot of these ideas. There is like a consistent theme in terms of like trying to resolve, especially with regarding, you know, the, the gender question in terms of how we to resolve the fact that there is like a, this patriarchal system that exists. And, you know, there is a consistent conclusion to how we resolve that. And it's like, like we keep saying on the show, it's the material need, stupid. You know, you got to ab- abolish the social relation that caused people to be bifurcated in this way. But, the bad thing has to do with the fact that, you know, the fact that we've been we've already been doing this. Like the fact that this was something presented 150 years ago, and yet this is the same thing, only just slightly slightly modified now. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I I actually did an episode of the Antifada last week on the movie Born in Flames. Are you familiar with this film? No. Well, Born in Flames, it's not even about, I mean, it is about 1983, but it's actually set in the future after a war of liberation has allegedly brought about uh, democratic socialism in America. But it actually hasn't done that because things are still pretty bad for working class women, especially working class queer black women. I see. And a lot of the issues in this film made me think about the same issues that I'd just been reading about in the Paris Commune. So 1983 and 1871 have a depressing amount in common, is what I'm trying to say. What what could be the common factor there? I'm going to go with capitalism. Yeah. And also, for all the the listeners at home that are men, just because you're a socialist doesn't mean that that absolves you from being a male chauvinist. 
That's right. So you do if better. If your socialism doesn't include <laughs> feminism, then that is wrong. Get out of here. Stop listening right now or continue listening and have us educate you because unlike most women, it is my job to educate you. So it's your lucky day. <laughs> yeah. If you, yeah if, if you tune off, you're not listening to women, honey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you don't give us money, you're also silencing women's voices. You're not paying women for their labor. There you go. There you go. All this, all this unwaged social reproductive labor that we do. You're not paying women and people of color for their labor. Think about that. Think about it. Yeah. Oh, speaking of which, holy shit, this is such a good time for a plug. Like, I didn't even remember that we were going to do one in the middle and I just started doing it. Yeah. In fact, interesting how this kind of happens, you know, if we're talking about paying people for labor, be sure if you're able to go to patreon.com slash everybody loves communism. Or if you prefer paying less, but you have to want to go to a different platform, but you want to pay less so that we can get more. Fans.fm slash everybody loves communism. Be sure to do That's so. That's right. Support the show. And we will have a lot of fun bonus content coming your way real soon. Real soon. Like episode with Michelle or more more cultural analysis with our side theories, cultural Marxism. Yeah. Did you guys like that? Did you like hearing us talk about a TV show about billionaires? I liked doing it. It was fun. Hope, hope all of you had fun at home. We, we could do much more of that if you just support the show. Yeah. And we also take requests. So sound off in the comments if there is something you want us to talk about. Maybe they just want us to do more episodes on succession. I don't know. Yeah, and if you for requests, also be sure to DM the Twitter at at, at ELC underscore at, at ELC pod on Twitter.com. Oh, yeah, you can also DM me at Jamie underscore Elizabeth. Don't be weird, just be cool. Or or you can DM Jorge at Line Goes Down. The possibilities are endless. Don't be weird. Yeah, no, that's uh, always. Don't be weird to Jamie. Does it even need to be said? It does. It actually does. But you know what? I'll beat Most your of- ass if you beat you be weird to Jamie. <laughs> oh my god. Like I uh, I just tweeted the other day about how we have a Patreon. Did you see one of the replies was like someone wanting to buy my used panties? <laughs> what in the world? Yeah, it's just weird to me cuz like you would think if you're like woke on main on main Yeah. You think if you're like woke enough to listen to my shows that you wouldn't be doing that, but I guess that's just the risky run being a woman online. There's a long way well, to go. To return now, to the Paris Commune. Yeah. What happens next? So we talked a lot about the wonderful things that happened in the Paris Commune. Some nice progressions moving forward. Makes you think about this wonderful situation we had. But as we mentioned many times, the Paris Commune only lasted two months. How did this unique experiment in worker democracy come to an end? Well, there were moments of weakness and decay leading up to this final week, which we call Bloody Week. On the 2nd of April, Versailles began bombing Paris and persisted in such bombing for days. On the 12th of April, this bombing intensified, and five days after that, the Methodist pastor W. Gibson supposedly said, it appears from what has transpired in the Assembly of Versailles that there are many among the deputies 
who will be glad to see Paris bombarded and the city burned to the ground. The prediction by Gibson was proved to be prophetic as by the 22nd of, 21st of May, the start of the aforementioned Bloody Week. The shells of Versailles had killed hundreds, perhaps thousands of Parisians, which was in addition to hundreds and hundreds of buildings that were destroyed. In fact, many of these buildings which were destroyed were in neighborhoods opposed to the commune. Uh-huh. <laughs> the brutality of the Tier government did not care who was in Paris as much as what was in Paris. This brutality was noted by U.S. diplomat Wickham Hoffman, who said, quote, It must always be a mystery why the French bombarded so persistently the quarter of the Arc de Triomphe, the west end of Paris, the quarter where nine out of ten of the inhabitants were known friends of the government, unquote. This is an American saying this. Keep that in mind. I mean, we can't be letting the commune keep an arc of triumph. Oh, my like, God. You got you to gotta destroy that shit. In many ways, this period was worse than the Siege of Paris in just a few months prior. The Prussians never bombed any medical facilities, but Versailles did. None of this mattered to the tier government. The Paris commune had to be destroyed by any means necessary. Hmm, wonder why that is. I wonder why. In response to the increasingly precarious military situation, on the 1st of May, funny enough, there was a successful vote to create a five-member committee of public safety. This committee was a throwback to 1793, where there existed a similar situation under the French Revolution, which we will talk about at some later episode, so stay tuned. The majority who supported such a committee were the Blancists, which include our familiar Rigaud, if you listen to our previous episodes, and Jacobins, which include Charles de Cluse, uh, de la Cluse, the better pronounced. Immediately, this committee grew at odds with the Central Committee of the National Guard, whose existence at this point undermined the legitimacy of this new Committee of Public Safety. So you have the people oh. in charge of the National Guard, now you have this, pe- this people from the Paris Commune being saying, we have authority above, uh, on the, on the nas- National Guard. So, a little, little, you know, conflicted. One of the first tasks of this new committee was the building of new barricades all over Paris to prepare for the Versailles troops. The person in charge of this project was Napoleon Gerard, a shoemaker who was a member of the International Working Men's Association, or the First International. Each barricade was about basically a wall of cobblestone between four and a half and five feet high, and three to four and a half feet thick, just to kind of give you an idea as to what, what these things were, that were being built look like. Meanwhile, Versailles forces continued to gain ground in Paris, inflicting huge casualties on communard fighters. In defiance of the Geneva Convention of 1864, yes, there was a Geneva Convention at this time, the Versailles troops killed prisoners and women under advance to Paris. Yes, the government of France committed war crimes. On the 8th of May, the French armed forces took Fort Izzy, which was a crucial strategic resource given it was a fort located near Paris. According to the U.S. ambassador Elihu B. Washburn, the news of the fall of Fort Izzy led to a day of panic in Paris and among the communards. It was understood how precarious the situation had become for the Paris commune at this time. Karl Marx's daughter, Jenny Marx, was actually in Paris during the commune. On May 12th, 
She wrote to her father that the end of the Paris Commune looked because of a lack, loomed because of a lack of military planning. She wrote chilling, chillingly, we are on the verge of a second June massacre. Her father seemed to have independently felt the same as he wrote a letter to Leo Franco and Louis Valin, people that Jamie had mentioned before, of Paris on May 13th, which May 13th is the day after May 12th, but remember, mail takes time to travel, so there's no way that Marx was inspired, was inspired by Jenny. They both came to the same conclusion. He said, quote, the, co- the commune seems to me to be wasting too much time and trivialities and personal quarrels. I mean, that's not the only reason they were fucked. Let's, uh, let's be clear. Absolutely. But, I mean, it didn't help. Yeah. On May 20th, the peace treaty between France and the German Empire was finalized. You know, if you remember from the, from the, from the war that was, that was occurred in the Franco-Prussian War, they finished the war, they ended the siege, and then they had a tentative agreement. But this, you know, on the May, 20th of May, that is when they finalized all the details. Versailles, at this point, after they finalized the details, they were ready to go towards Paris. You know, all right, we dealt with this. Now to deal with this local problem. Bloody Week was the, the last stand by the communards against the French armed forces. In other words, this was the last week of the Paris Commune. The German playwright Berlo Brecht captured the feeling of urgency by the Tier government in his play, The Days of the Commune. While fictional, we could believe Thiers has said something akin to this at Versailles. Quote, Our civilization is founded on property. Property must be protected at all costs. They have the nerve to dictate to youth what we must give up and what we can keep. Get me sabers. Get me cavalry. If it takes a sea of blood to wash Paris clean of its vermin, then let us have a sea of blood. Unquote. Damn. I guess someone was mad that they, like, stole his paintings and took a shit on his desk. And blew up his house. I mean, I, but it's more than just that. I mean, of course, this is fictional, but I, we could not, I, I know for myself, I would not be surprised if it, something similar of that conversation occurred when, when they were ready to throw down. I mean, I can only imagine that Brecht was taking this from something that Tears said. He got the vibe. I think well, he got the vibe. Well, we'll get to it in terms of some other stuff that Tears did actually say, and in many ways it's worse, but we'll get to it. Um, so, by four in the morning, on the 21st of May, a Sunday, which is, again, the day after they finalized the treaty with the Germans, 50,000 troops led by General Felix Charles Douay had broken into the city. Within 17 hours of this first breach of the ramparts, 130,000 Versailles soldiers, along with their artillery, had entered the city. In little more than 24 hours, the Versailles troops had wrested control of about a third of Paris. The only reason they paused was to allow the reserves of their forces time to catch up. Think about that. The troops had faced very little resistance from the residents of the more bourgeois neighborhoods of the western arrondissement. So they managed to advance so quickly that they had to stop to allow people in the back to catch up. Damn. The following day on the 22nd of May, Monday, the leader of the Committee of Public Safety, Charles de Luclos, had issued a proclamation based on the wall of Paris. It was posted on the walls of Paris all over. 
quote, Citizens, enough of militarism. No more fancy officers sporting decorations on their uniforms. Give way to the people, to bare knuckle fighters. The hour of revolutionary war has arrived. Despite their best efforts to muster communards together to defend the commune, this was not enough. The relatively enormous Versailles forces with about 130,000 troops eclipsed the 20,000, if at that, fighters that were tasked with defending the Paris Commune. It was, it was very, you know, very much a you know, bit more than six to one there. So Ugh, That's so bad. Yeah, and it's, um, so, you know, the following day on the 23rd of May, on Tuesday, there was a declaration that actually of, by Adolf Thiers to his prefects and all civil, judicial, military authorities, which we'll all read to. Um, we'll be reading some primary sources here, folks. So, now I'm going to read it out. We are masters of Paris, except for a very small part that will be occupied tomorrow. The Tuileries is in ashes. The Louvre has been saved. That part of the Ministry of Finance that runs along the Rue de Rivoli has been set on fire. The palace on the Quai de Ose, in which the Council of State and the Cour de Comptes were housed, was also set on fire. Such is the state in which Paris has been delivered to us by the scoundrels who oppressed and dishonored it. They left us 12,000 prisoners, and we will certainly have between 18 to 20,000. The ground is covered with their corpses. It is hoped that this horrible spectacle will serve as a lesson to the insurgents who dared declare themselves partisans of the commune. Justice will soon satisfy a human conscience outraged by the monstrous acts that France and the world have just witnessed. The army was admirable. Even in our misfortune, we are happy to be able to announce that thanks to the wisdom of our generals, it suffered few losses. Adolf Thiers, Versailles, 23rd of May, 1871, at 7.25 a.m. Scratch a liberal and a fascist bleeds. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's some real... That's some real shit right there. That's some fashy shit. And you know what? If you think uh, fucking Macron would not do the same thing, you're sorely mistaken. Oh, he would. He, I'm sure he's, he's aware of this and he's aching for the chance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's important to note that on this day, on the 23rd of May, Montmartre was taken by Versailles troops. At this point, it was considered a turning point for the Paris Commune. Since Montmartre, if you remember from... The previous the end of the previous episode was where they did their final stand against the the Third French Republic and then started the Paris Commune. It was a very much it was both strategic in terms of a place in the city, given us the high hills and the, and the weapons stored there, but also symbolic. Yeah, if you've ever been there, there's a lot of steps. Right, <laughs> it's a very very steep neighborhood. So. The following day, on the 24th of May, Wednesday, the day after the fall of Montmartre, the commune issued a proclamation intended for the Versailles troops, the troops, the Versailles troops, the troops that are coming from the Tier government, saying, do not abandon the cause of the workers. Do as your brothers did on March 18th. Let's remember, the National Guard refused to shoot 
their fellow Parisians. They really, they remember how they were told multiple times to shoot and they refused to? They're mm. trying to appeal to them in that same way. The God. Committee of Public Safety also issued their own message. Like us, you are proletarians. Join us, our brothers. On this day, there was also, there was, you know, part of, there were several battles, but one battle in particular was over the control of the Pantheon. And the reason this is important because we have a really great um, primary source that we will read a description of the battle. There's a, the primary source has like a description of being there and then the, the aftermath. So we'll read the aftermath the following day. But right now we'll read the description of what happened based on what this person said. 12.30 in the afternoon. Let's go to the town hall. I go down by the Medici's fountain. In a dried out basin, two fighters are sitting. Packets of cartridges are laid out in the middle. I tell them they're exposed on all sides. What do we give a fuck? We'll fire laying down. On the balcony of the house at the corner of the boulevard and Rue Soufflot, a half dozen young people. Rifles slung across their backs. I recognize a few of them. Marotot with his Christ-like face. La Rouget of Piaf Paper de Van Gogh. Others. Here comes Valet. He's ill, he says, exhausted. Three nights without sleep. He's wearing felt slippers, walking on the arm of a female friend. To town hall? I don't have the time to answer. A frightful explosion freezes the words on my lips. A cloud of black smoke with large blotches of fire rises from the Luxembourg Palace on the side nearest the observatory. Lisbon has just blown up the powder magazine set up in the place formerly occupied by the nursery. The smashed windows tinkle on the sidewalk. Cries of terror and despair have replaced the silence of just a few minutes ago. The Pantheon is going to blow up. The Pantheon's going to blow up. And a crowd rushes through the barricades, the ammunition, the field hospitals. Where are they running? They don't know. With the Pantheon, won't the entire quarter collapse into the catacombs? Women flee, panicked, dragging their children behind them, others with packages. One has a clock under her arm. And always the cry, the Pantheon is going to blow up. At the town hall, down below, I pass the leader of the 248th, Henri Huger, the son of the member of the commune, who ties his horse to the grating on the window. We go upstairs together. Upstairs, it's a tumult of the final moments. Seated at tables are employees assailed with demands for requisitions, for signatures on supply vouchers, money for wages. I look around for members of the commune, a few worried faces, others determined to fight. Downstairs, the square is filled with fighters. There are some on the steps of the Pantheon, behind the columns of the portico, everywhere. There are even some beneath the dome on the circular platform surrounding the colonnades. It is these men who, fighting until the final moment, no longer have the time to descend the steps and flee, were executed on the very spot they were taken prisoner. A witness assured me that for a long time, behind this colonnade, one could see large pools of blood. Raul Rougeau was near the Pantheon before it fell. 
He had been doing his duties as prefect of police that day. And now we're not talking to primary sources. This is like different. Damn. That was quite the mic drop, by the way. Good job reading a very dramatic piece. Thank you. And really, you really made it come alive. Thank I felt you. like I was right there. Well, they also wrote it really, you know, very much like they were there. Because they were. But they, the writing of it really helped with it. So I don't, I can't take credit for that. <laughs> well, you can take credit for reading it. Appreciate you it. did good. Thank you. So, given what we talked about in terms of the Pantheon, Raoul Rougeau, who we've mentioned before, who was a chief of police of the Paris Commune at the time, he was near the Pantheon before it fell. He had been doing his duties as prefect of police that day. While at his station prefecture, he decided to go to the Pantheon wearing his uniform as a commander of the 114th National Guard Battalion with the intent to encourage resistance. So, you know, props to him. He wants to rally the troops of sorts. A friend told him this was perhaps not a good idea. And he apparently responded with, Mon vieux, better to die like this. This would be useful for the next time. I guess he believes in reincarnation. Yeah, I guess. After the barricade on the Rue Flow fell, Rougeau entered the hotel and presumably rented a room, room there with a fake name. Some people think that like he, after, after, the, after the barricade on Rusev Flow, which was protecting the, the Pantheon, some people, like, I remember reading about this, some people suspect that he went to the hotel with the idea that you know, he kind of gave up, right? He's like, kind of like, all right, I'm just going to have a moment of peace to kind of like get myself together because he, he knew at that point it's over. Right? Like, it's just, like, they're going to come and get me. One last nap. So it's like, or it's just like, you know, just think about stuff. Relax. Jeez. Versailles soldiers saw a guardsman enter the hotel and proceeded to storm the building. The soldiers accosted the hotel owner and threatened to kill him if he did not give up Brugot. When the hotelier refused, Brugot was said to have replied with, I am neither an idiot nor a coward. I'll go down. As he surrendered to the soldiers, he was taken to the Luxembourg Gardens, where execution squads were at work. As he gave up his pistol to the soldiers, Rigol said, Here I am, me voila. When he was taken against the wall, Rigol shouted, Long live was the commune, down with the murderers, before he was shot dead. Damn, that's based. Yeah, some real, some real... That, that, that's why we presented him from, from, the, from the beginning because that telling we, we picked somebody that was in general pretty inconsequential in terms of administrative duties but to kind of show you the life of someone who became a revolutionary and then yet till the very end they were about it till the fucking end um, sidebar I'm guessing none of these execution squads or the national troops at this time, listened to the exhortations from the crowds to turn on the French government. Well, it's important to mention that these, there's not the National Guard at this point. Like the people, these, are, these are the troops from Versailles. Right, right. But, I mean, the National Guard before was working for the national government. They just developed in a different way. Right, right, right. right. Well, I mean, the National Guard 
is just the ones that were in Paris, like the arms, that, and those were the ones that were defending during the Paris Commune. Yeah. So yeah. they, so they, it was in many ways like military on military violence. Yeah. So it didn't. The point is, it did not work with no. these troops. No, no. Trying to trying to piece to their soul apparently didn't work this time. They they were not from Paris, and it, they didn't yeah. give a shit. Yeah, they didn't care. They didn't care. The reason they, the National Guard cared is because they were. These people were real to them. These were their like next door neighbors. They're they're the, the shopkeeper they love going to every day. The person that you know, they the person they they bought their clothing from. You know, like the the they're not gonna their 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 childhood friends. They're you know, they're you know maybe their ex. Like these are people are not gonna want to just do that to. Yeah, they they also had not suffered just suffered uh, the siege of Paris. Right, right. Also, that's also really important context as well. So if you want the troops to turn on their generals and side with the people, there's a lot of factors that need to be in place. Yep. Material conditions, folks. Got to note this. Got to jot this down for later. Yep. Yeah. One could say. Theoretically. I don't know. Who's, who can say? Um, Hypothetically. In a video game. In a video game. So on Thursday following day, the 25th of May, the ethnographer and director of the Bibliothèque Nationale during the Commune, Elia Reclus, said that Paris had been transformed into a, and I'm going to be a quote, a workshop, an immense workshop, but a workshop in which machine guns are at work, a workshop in which the work of destruction is accomplished on such a grand scale. It is a horrible cacophony. This infernal chivalry of hatred and passion. At this point, all communal discipline had completely evaporated. Charles de Duclos, who was essentially, at the, we didn't really mention, but he was basically the, the de facto guy in charge of the Paris Commune in the last week. Kind of like uh, the police chief almost. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Rigaud was the police chief, but this guy was in charge of the National Guard. Right, so, right. So it was a bit higher than that. So, so he was prepared to die. At this point, he was prepared to die since the end of the commune was nigh. On this day, he wrote to a friend to say that he would let history judge what was the commune. On a patrol toward the barricade near the Place du Château de O, Delaclou decided to stand on the barricade, just literally stand on top of it to wait death. And it happened in only a few seconds. At this point, the commune leadership was almost completely destroyed. And yet, despite that, the violence persisted. And I could, I'll read the second half of that primary source I read from earlier to give you an idea. Thursday, May 25th, the day after the taking of the Pantheon, at bottom of Rue Soufflot, the early morning hours, the barricade on Rue Gay-Lussac is still standing. Behind the fences of the Luxembourg Garden, whose entrances are closed, soldiers are coming and going. Cavalry men in unbuttoned blue jackets with white braiding, police caps tilted on their heads, talk and smoke near the horses tied to the trees. On Boulevard Saint-Michel, soldiers, cannons hitched to their wagons, ready to head to the battle rumbling in the distance, tricolor flags in all the windows. Spread out all over the gar- ground are kepis, belts, cartridge pouches, and army boots. At the corner of Rue Monsieur le Prince, 
a heap of dead men, five or six of them. Another dead man stretched out on his back, an arm folded across his chest, the other extended, his face covered with the communard kepi. The beard sticking out from under the hat is stained with blood. He must have been hit square in the face. A final modesty, quite rare on those horrible days, impelled someone to hide the horrible wound. I bend down to look at the number of his battalion. If I were to just lift the cappy, I don't dare. The basin of the Medici fountain is filled with corpses. Jumbled together are victors and vanquished, executioners and the executed. Surrounded fighters lie dead on the paving stones. Tiny Chauzeaux in their slate-colored tunics, who I saw the day before the top of the Pantheon steps, crossing the square at a run. The grapeshot of the Roussefleur barricade mowed them down like blades of grass. They are there, about twenty of them, crushed one against the other, dusty, bloody. Their eyes, who no one has closed, remain wide open. They were tossed into the basin the previous day after the battle, so they wouldn't block the street. Soon the horrible cart of the dead, a yellow moving van, will pick them up to spill them into the ditches being hastily dug in the necropolises. So that was that was the the, the source. Chilling. Jeez. Yeah. No, and still doesn't and it's, I feel like it gives you like a in terms of how it felt to be there when it was going on. Um so twenty sixth of May, Friday. Gabriel Rancière at this point was pretty much the last person who was really with any leadership of the Paris Commune, posted a decree, a call of action of sorts, and it was uh, titled, To the Citizens of the 20th Arrondissement. This is the last primary source we're going to read. The moment has come to fight with ferocity an enemy who has made pitiless war on us for two months. You know what lot is reserved for us if we succumb? To arms then, and don't put them down until after our victory. Be vigilant, especially at night. Be ever ready in order to avoid the ruses of our enemies. I thus come to you in a common interest, asking in the name of the solidarity that unites all revolutionaries at this moment, that you faithfully execute the orders that will be given to you. There is a grave danger that I'd like to point out to you and ask the refusal of the National Guard to go forward under the pretext of guarding the barricades of the neighborhoods that are not threatened. Give your assistance to the 19th arrondissement. Help it to push back the enemy. There lies your security, and victory is at this price. Don't wait for Belleville to be attacked. That would be too late. Forward, and Belleville will have once again triumphed. Long live the Republic. Belleville, May 25th, 1871, the, mem- the member of the Committee of Public Safety, Gabriel Ranvier, the members of the Commune, Berreguet, Viard, Trinquet. It's so short because that's all there are left. And the, now this call of action would be the last one the Commune would have. But it didn't matter. No one showed up to help defend Belleville. And the Place de la Bastille additionally was also captured by the Versailles troops. Near the end, the Versailles troops captured the remaining positions of the commune, which offered little resistance at this point. Oy. You know what sticks out to me about this is just the knowledge of what's coming, right? Like, 
there's no way to avoid yeah. violence and death. And he knew that once the commune fell, it was everyone was going to be massacred. Everyone yeah. was going to be put up against the wall and shot. They knew. So given given that fact, you might as well fight to the last second, right? I mean, this is it reminds me, obviously, not an exactly analogous situation, but it reminds me of the uh, the coup in Chile in 1973, right. Right. Um, where uh, the leader in this case uh, didn't necessarily recognize what was going to happen no. if they didn't win. And uh, like people got massacred uh, en masse. And I think, you know, you don't lose anything by giving it everything you've got. You don't lose anything by arming the people. Uh, in such a situation. Yeah, I mean... The leader I'm talking about, of course, is Salvador Allende. Right. Makes me wonder how much he knew about history. I don't know. Well, you know what? Maybe... God, there's so many things that have happened and everything that's happened is connected to a bunch of other things that have happened, it turns out. So <laughs> maybe we can do a little comparative history at some point. Yeah, we'll see when we get to it. Might be a bonus episode. Now, in the end, the French armed forces spent eight full days massacring the communards and shooting civilians indiscriminately. Depending on who you ask, you know, Merriman claims about 12 to 15. Um, others claim 30,000 and as many as 40,000 have been estimated of communards and workers were executed. Between twelve to fifteen, or up to forty thousand, that is a gigantic amount, regardless of when within one city. Yeah. And about fifty thousand more who were arrested. Those who were in prison were done so on as little evidence as them having just the callous hands of a worker. Damn! Talk about classism. Look, maybe classism isn't a real thing in every situation, because class is a social relation. It's not an identity. This is classism, folks. Yeah, it's real. While the vast majority of those who were arrested did end up being released, 10,000 still did end up being sentenced. That's a lot of people. And as many as 4,000 being sent off to a penal colony in New Caledonia, which is a French colonial archipelago located in the Pacific Ocean east of Australia. So they were sent really far away. With a mission to, in the words of Adolf Thiers, Bleed democracy dry for a generation. The left in France was crushed and demobilized for a generation. Paris would not again have the right to elect a mayor for over a century. Not until 1977. Damn, I did not know that. Yeah. The first international was banned in France as a sub uh, because of the commune. The government justified its actions by saying the repression was a painful necessity. Society is obliged to... Is obligated to defend itself. Who who is society? The, who is society here? Yeah, I wonder. The Versailles magistrate had shouted, "In Paris, the whole population was guilty." The anti-communists shouted, "The brigands! We must exterminate them to the last one." People think people really said. Nothing came close to this massacre on the European continent until what happened to the Armenians in 1915 during World War I. The language used to justify the actions by the Tier government, where they said, and this is really what they used to justify it, they said, the socialists, specifically the international, they really 
basically international socialist, the anarchist, and the weakness of the church is what led to the moral disorder of the Paris Commune. These, this similar line of reasoning and ways of language would not be heard again until Nazi Germany. Damn. Yeah, this just... Uh... It kind of has echoes of the idealism on display in that New Yorker article that made me so angry, honestly. The idea that, you know, this wasn't the objective result of specific material conditions and objective class conflicts and contradictions. It was just it was just moral disorder. It was just basically a temper tantrum from these crazy socialists in Paris. Right, right. right. It's not because that they want to have autonomy over their own lives and have, you know, improved their own material situation. The Paris Commune was a significant moment, not just for the socialist movement, but for French history, and was recognized as such in its own time. On the 30th of May, you know, to point out, bloody week for us from Sunday to Sunday, 21st of May to 28th of May, two days after the end of the Commune, on the 30th of May, Karl Marx wrote The Civil War in France, which was his understanding and response to the Paris Commune. And we'll talk about the Civil War in France when we talk about Chapter 3 of State Revolution. Remember, we're still doing this. Um, do you remember? So we, all of this we did for a context for that. And we'll do readings from it as Lenin did readings from The Civil War in France. With time, things got better. There was a partial amnesty for communards in 1879, only a few few years after, with a complete amnesty on July 11th, 1880. Thousands of Frenchmen and women returned from exile and imprisonment. Communard Louis Michel, who we've mentioned many times now, actually led the the first demonstration of French workers on May 1st, 1890, the first ever International Workers' Day or May Day. Hell yeah. Now, let us end on a stanza from from a series of poems written by Victor Hugo known as Léon le Terrible, or The Terrible Year, which was written in 1872, the following year, where he reflects from August 1870 to July 1871 on the Franco-Prussian War, the Siege of Paris, losing his son Charles, and the Paris Commune. I take up pen to tell of the terrible year. And suddenly, I stop, elbows on my desk. Must I proceed? Must I go on? France, what horror to see a star fade in the heavens. I feel the lugubrious ascent of disgrace, dismal anguish. One curse falls, a new one rises. No matter, let's continue. History needs this. The century is in the dock, and I am his witness. And Jamie, thank you and I and everyone listening. I think we are all also history's witness here too. Damn, that's some heady stuff, man. Ugh, I don't even know what to say. I uh, learned a lot from your part too. Yeah, hope everyone at home learned a lot and... You know, this is an important part of our history. And there's a reason why Marx and Lenin were both concerned with it, even Lenin living so many years later. Yeah, you know, we could talk about, you know, Lenin really valued the Paris Commune. You know, there's a 
a story that almost def- based on what we know doesn't seem like it happened, but you know, since the Paris Commune only lasted a few weeks, ten weeks, when after the Bolshevik Revolution, after ten weeks had passed and they had lasted, it's sa- it's said to have it's legend says that like you know after uh, the ten weeks of the Paris Commune had passed, it is said that Lenin started dancing in the snow. That yes, we've made it past what what they did. Wow. You know what? I wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> it was a significant influence on his life. I mean, and it was like, I mean, to put it to, to put it in context, and we'll do more historical context when we start talking about this, you know, later on. But before the 1917 revolution, the first, the revolution that had an impact on Lenin was the 1905 revolution in Russia. And it's important to note that from 1905 to the Paris Commune, that was about 34 years. That means us in 2021 are further away from Ronald Reagan being elected president than in 1905 they were from the Paris Commune. Hmm. Makes you think. And if you're thinking of the Bolshevik Revolution on that scale, then it was all, you know really just like from here, like from what we are now to you know the late 70s the Bolshevik Revolution to the Paris Commune. So it, this is not something that just happened and happened in a vacuum. It's like, no, this people from a later generation had this in their recent history. That's pretty crazy to think about, I got to say. Um, there's really not much in our recent history that makes me think uh, revolution's going to happen. But you know what? Maybe the George Floyd uprising was our 1905. We'll see. Who knows? We shall see. Well, here's a fun fact that I saw memefied the other day. Uh, God, it's it's got numbers in it. <laughs> Let me see if I get this right. Uh, the average empire lasts 250 years, and the U.S. is what, like 246 years old or some shit? Well, makes you think. Yes, it does. He's not saying shit. (laughs) Good job. That was a test. Thank you. (laughs) Makes you think about what could what 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 could happen. You know, history is always in flux. Who knows? Who who could say? The rest is still unwritten. And until next time. You gonna say the thing? Do the reading. Until next time. Do the reading and sign up as a patron. Yeah, sign up as a patron. You know, don't forget. Sign up as a patron. That's right. I hope that we've earned it. I feel like you earned it a little more than me this episode. Um, I think I got to step up my game. We all need to step up our game, Jamie. It's important that we do it. Yeah. Um, we, we, all, you... we, we try to make more, do more research. We all need to present it better, bring more primary resources so everyone can hear what's going on. And... The folks listening at home should, you know, bring up their game by doing the reading. And if you really want to step up your game, supporting the show. That's right. Well, we'll see you next time for Chapter 3, finally, of State and Revolution. See ya. Until next time. Peace. Bye.